0: Today is March 18th, 2015, and my guest is Phil Rosenzweig, professor of strategy and international business at IMD in Switzerland. He is the author of Left Brain, Right Stuff, How Leaders Make Winning Decisions. Phil, welcome to Econ Talk.
1: Thank you. Good to be with you.
0: Now, The perspective, we're going to talk about your book today and the general issue of how do you make uh, wise and, and good decisions. Uh, the framework of your book is that many of the experimental results that we often hear about relative to decision making are incomplete or not completely useful for real world uh, decision making give us an overview of, of that literature in and mainly behavioral economics and why it's what's what is it missing
1: okay Uh, Well, first of all, um, good good to be with you, and when you announced me as being from Switzerland, people might expect uh, a a somewhat different accent. I'm uh, originally from California, but I've been here for quite a while, and and I have been a professor in business school, so I begin with managers making decisions in real-world settings. I'm not a cognitive psychologist, so I come at decision-making in a somewhat different way. Uh, the really good news is, for the last number of years, there's been outstanding work done by cognitive psychologists about the ways people make judgments and choices, and we've learned a lot about what people do well and what they do less well, and a lot of that now has been made accessible to a general public and reached a, a popular audience, and I'm a big fan of that work, so my my book is not a critique of that. My critique, though, is with people who've taken that work and have generalized the findings to settings that can be very, very different. Uh, And one of the problems we have is that if you're trying to do really good work about the way people make judgments and choices, you often try to do that work in controlled experimental settings. That's great for certain kinds of decisions. But when managers, when leaders are making decisions in real-world settings, those kinds of controls don't exist. You're not just making, uh, you're not selecting options that are presented in front of you. You can actually change the options. You're not just picking A or B. You can maybe improve A to be A prime. And you oftentimes also have a competitive dimension. So a lot of that work is very good. As I say, I'm not, a, I'm not trying to debunk it, but we need to be a little bit more careful in how we apply it. So let's start with one issue that you hear a lot about, uh, which
0: is overconfidence. There's a lot of experimental work uh, that shows that people are overconfident. Uh, explain why that's a very, very incomplete summary. In particular, uh, it has it has limited implications for how you should make your own decisions? I, as you point out in the book, a lot of people say, "Learn from that literature and say, so don't be overconfident." Uh, besides the fact that it's hard <laughs> not to be. Uh, right. Overconfident uh, or to change better to say it it 's hard not to change it 's hard to change your behavior when exhorted, but that 's not the only problem
1: well there's there 's a lot of things I think that are problematic with the word overconfidence. The first thing is the way we tend to use it in everyday speech we tend to apply it retrospectively when something has gone badly. So, you know, gee, this didn't work out well, I guess I was overconfident. Ex ante, nobody thinks they're overconfident. And if something goes well, you say, oh, you see, I had an appropriate level of confidence. If something goes badly, we say it was overconfident. So that's one problem. That's not, by the way, the problem that good researchers have because they know not to make those sorts of attributions retrospectively to to researchers they've tended to say that overconfidence is a level of confidence that is excessive or unwarranted well what do we mean by that well if i think i can do something that i've never done before is that overconfidence well why by one definition it is you know if i think i can run 10000 meters a 10k in a time i've never done before And I think I can do it. Am I being overconfident? Well, the thing is, I'm not simply predicting what I'm going to be able to do. I'm the person who has to do that. And when it comes to things that we actually have to do, where we're not just predicting something that somebody else will do, but we have to do it, to have a level of confidence that is somewhat elevated, somewhat optimistic, can, for many people, actually lead for them to do better. So... If it leads you to do better, well, is it overconfidence or not? By one measure, it is. It's a level of confidence more than I've ever done. But if it encourages me to do better, it's really not excessive. So that's one way to look at it. I could go on, there's there's, there's lots of well, other wanna, things in the that first, word. Yeah,
0: I wanna talk about that first. Let, let me stop you there. You, you, mm-hmm. you talk in the book about leadership in many examples, and um, when you ask, should you be confident in your ability to do something you haven't done before, Uh, that's a very important trait in an entrepreneur uh, starting in a startup. You you better have some confidence both for yourself and for your employees who look to you for inspiration.
1: Right. And so I I spent quite a bit of the time talking about leadership. And let me just point out the the book. The subtitle of the book is How Leaders Make Winning Decisions. There's two really important words there. I didn't say how people make good decisions. I'm talking not just about ordinary people, shoppers, consumers, and so forth, investors, but leaders. When you're in a leadership role, you are guiding other people, you are trying to inspire them or mobilize their action, and I didn't just say good decisions, I say winning decisions. What's important there? A winning decision, to, to win, involves doing better than somebody else, so there's a relative dimension. When we're talking about somebody who's inspiring others, leading a team or uh, starting a business or something, you may need to convey to other people a level of confidence that they and you collectively can achieve something that hasn't been done before. You get into a, a very curious aspect of leadership where if you are brutally honest with everybody and you tell them, gosh, you know, the odds are against us. This has never been done before. I'm not sure we can do it. Well, you very likely won't do it. So we like to talk about transparency and things like that, but one of the traits of a good leader is how they selectively convey information to their followers and sometimes try to inspire them to do more than what they have done before. Is that deception and manipulation? By some definitions, yes. By other definitions, I think it's probably one of the highest traits of a leader. Well, I think it's
0: why most academics don't make very good leaders. Um, they're prone to worry about, well, what about this? And on the other hand, and uh, caveats and hesitation, at least in some settings. But you give the example in the book, uh, really a very powerful example and, and very dramatic of Apollo 13. Uh, talk about the leadership that was displayed there by, I think it's Gene Kranz is his name.
1: Right. Well, the person I focused there uh, is Gene Kranz. Many people will remember the 1995 movie Tom Hanks uh, played Jim Lovell up in space, but it was Ed Harris who played Gene Kranz, who was ground controller. It, the fact is they worked in shifts, and he was not the only controller, but he's the one focused on there, and he's gotten a lot of the credit. He's the guy who said, you know, failure is not an option and so forth. But if you look at it, th- the odds were were clearly very slim that Apollo 13 was going to come back. I mean, it certainly was very, very far from, from a sure thing. Yet he had to convey to people on his team that, you know, don't talk to me about the odds. Don't talk to me about the difficulties we have. We're going to get this done. You know, failure is not an option, so on and so forth. And in fact, uh, I, I contacted him and I asked him about this because so much of what NASA was about was extremely good, objective analytics about probabilities and, you know, three sigma and all these things about trying to get chance of failure very, very low. So clearly the people there were thinking in a very good, detect, analytical way before the mission, planning for the next mission. But at that moment in time, when those guys are up there and you're trying to bring them back, you have to convey to people that the odds don't matter. We have to get this done.
0: And they might and not so have, They might not have, in which case he would have looked overconfident, as you point out. It would be cherry-picking. But the other point I thought was important was he didn't use that confidence. I would call it confidence, not overconfidence. He didn't use that confidence to sort of sit back and say, oh, we'll work it out. They relentlessly worked systematically
1: at reducing the odds of, of failure. Yes, and and – Exactly right, because his job there is not to sit back and say, gosh, I wonder what the odds are. His job is to say, let's make it happen. Let's do better. Um, I'll give you a a slightly different uh, analogy. I don't know if you'll like this one or not. It's not in the book. But I was reading quite a bit about the the approval decision to go ahead with the mission to kill uh, Osama bin Laden. And there was a lot of time spent at the White House, you know, between Panetta, the CIA, and Obama's team, and all this about what's the chance that this person we see in this house in uh, Abbottabad in, in Pakistan is in fact Bin Laden? You know, is it this percent? Is it that percent? And at some point, Obama apparently said, "Let's just assume it's fifty-fifty. We don't know." And I think what he meant by that was we may look at the intelligence a little more closely and realize. It's 55 or 60 or maybe 45. But you know what? That is not time well spent. We should be spending our time getting this mission to be successful rather than trying to think, is this, you know, can we be a little more precise? So again, that's an example of somebody who says, let's use our time not to assess the odds, but to improve the performance that we're going to deliver. Yeah, what
0: I thought interesting is you talked about how uh, in the case of Apollo 13, President Nixon wanted to know the odds, which was very, would have been very useful for him. He wanted to know probably how much time to spend getting ready for a catastrophe uh, because mm. he, that was what his natural – he couldn't do anything to bring him back more quickly. He had to deal with whatever the fallout would be if it failed. So he was curious, I assume, among other reasons, to know what, how much time to put into that. Uh, but I love that, that Kranz never wouldn't answer the question.
1: Right. And, and, uh, in the movie Krantz just, you know, waves the question away and the other people there report back to the white house that it's, you know, I don't know, three to one against. And I wanted to know if that had really happened. So I managed to, uh, send emails to Gene Krantz and, you know, had a few questions, And one of those was, you know, in the movie, the white house asked, did that in fact happen? And um, I just had a brief exchange with him. It wasn't that lengthy. But he says, I think they may have, in any event, I wouldn't have given them because I said to my team, the crew is coming back. And again, that to me is an example of what I try to talk about in this book, the the title Left Brain Right Stuff. The idea is, you know, the the rational, detached, analytical side says, well, of course the odds are less than 100% they're coming back. But we're only going to bring them back if we push ourselves to uh, do the best we can. And sometimes you need to be somewhat optimistic or insist that you can actually shape outcomes. And so one of the key ideas in the book, if we come back to this notion about where the, the decision research sometimes I think falls a bit short, so many of the studies about judgment and choice involve evaluations of things that we can't Shape, you know what the weather is going to do, and are the, you know, are the Knicks going to win next week, and who's going to win the next election? the price, can't really change the price of things. a good that we're thinking of buying. Precisely, and and that's that's very good if you're doing an experiment because, you know, they say, okay, gee, Russ thought the S&P 500 was going to do this, and Phil thought it was going to do that, and we can ask a whole bunch of people and get really good data. It's much more complicated to do research if you're asking people about things they can control because you don't have an objective um, phenomenon that we're all trying to assess. There's a reason why scientists like to ask you to choose from a set of options that you cannot change with certain parameters that you cannot alter or make an estimate about something that you're not able to 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 influence, however, in real life, of course we have those kinds of decisions, but a lot of what we do on a day to day basis we can actually improve i mean I'm sure you prepared for this interview and you thought, well, it could go well, it could go less well. How do I prepare this to make it as good as possible and you're going to you know drive home at the end of the day and you you, you don't just get in the car and say, shall I choose to drive safely or not? You have to make it happen. And then, you know, you cook dinner. And most of our lives, I would tell you, are, are about doing things, uh, making judgments and choices about things that we cannot influence is is probably a minority of, of what we do yeah i'm very confident this is going to go well by the way
0: uh <clears throat> and we, we don't have any subjective real very many subjective measures uh, objective measures of that so i'm going to persist in that view even after it's over uh the other part of it that i thought was so interesting it, it, i mean the thing i don't there's a number of things i don't like about the the literature on this the so-called overconfidence you know how long is the nile river that's a typical question mm-hmm. and how confident mm-hmm. are you of your answer well so we haven't thought about that much. Um, I, I, if I get it wrong, I can look it up. I'm, I mean, I'd never guess it if I was important and look it up. <laughs> uh, yeah. So if you tell me, give me 30 seconds, and then how confident you are, if you can use any research you want, I'm going to be very confident, and I'm going to be probably right. So a lot of these laboratory experiment uh, results are very artificial. As you point out, They are they're not things we can control. They're usually things that are on the outside. But more than that, they're not things we care about very much. They're not things that we are accustomed to making decisions about. And I thought one of the nicest points you make in the book is that, you know, you ask people if they're a good driver, they're above average, and what's the number? Seventy percent in some settings say they're above average. Or,
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: you know, I, my joke used to be, and I made it before. I apologize to listeners. Uh, you know, at least um, at least half of my fellow graduate students, uh, at least a, half of us thought we were in the top ten percent of our class, maybe even the top five percent. And I like to think that most macroeconomists, macro <laughs> a, a disproportionate share of macroeconomists think they have an inside shot at being chair of the Fed, and that uh, distorts their, uh, their uh, view of the Fed, unfortunately. So I, I think that there's obviously uh, – sometimes we overestimate our abilities, but as you point out, there are many times we underestimate them.
1: Right, and so it, it, right there, what what you've done is you've taken the word overconfidence and you've mentioned a few different experiments that are actually very different in their nature. And one thing I try to tease apart here are these. Now, I'm quoting here some work that was done uh, a fellow named Don Moore, who's a professor at Berkeley, and his colleague, P.J. Healy, who I think is at Ohio State. They wrote a book a few years, uh, an article a few uh, years ago called uh, The Trouble with Overconfidence. And what they point out is that this one word has been used to mean three very different things. First of all, when people say, oh yeah, I'm 90% sure of this, and it turns out actually they should be much less, we're too precise. We tend to be too precise in our ability to, you know, in, in ranges that we give or our certainty about certain events. A second thing, you mentioned the word overestimation. There's that too. If I think that I can complete a project in six months and actually I can't, or if I think I can you know, high jump six feet and I can only do four, uh, that's overestimation. But then the third one, and you touched upon this, when I think I'm in the top 10%, and, you know, a whole bunch of us think we're in the top 10%, that's the third one that's overplacement. Now let's just stop there. Overestimation, so overprecision, overestimation, and overplacement. If you look at the work on overconfidence, we tend to mean one of those three at any given time, and we kind of uh, go back and forth among them, using evidence of one to claim another. What the research shows is, regarding overprecision, yes, there is very robust evidence that most people are overprecise much of the time. When I say I'm ninety nine percent sure, it's not really ninety nine. Part of it has to do with just the, the way I use words, but Correct. we are. Most and, and, of the us. Social,
0: and the social convention, that it's sometimes awkward to concede that you don't know something for sure. <laughs>
1: uh, there, there's that too. And it, and it becomes a figure of speech. Oh, I'm 90% sure. Well, it doesn't really mean that I believe nine times out of ten. But, but however you think of that, we do tend to be over-precise. The evidence on estimation and placement is nowhere near as powerful. There are some examples where people do tend to overestimate their abilities, but there's other examples where people underestimate their own abilities. How many times have you heard somebody say, oh, I'm no good at math? Or how many Americans say, oh, I could never learn another language? Well, you know, you live in Switzerland, where I live, and your secretary speaks four languages, and he or she does not have great education. You just kind of grow up in doing it. I was in South Africa recently. I have ordinary folks there speak five, six languages. You can do it. So you may overestimate some things, but we also are prone to some. Underestimation, and then as far as placement goes, this is the thing about you know how many people think they're in the top ten percent. I give the example of driving. Yeah, That's great the classic. example. Oh, you know how many people think that they're better than average? Well, most of us do. But then, in my research, when I do a survey, I also ask a second question. I said, "How good are you at drawing a, a picture? You know, a, a sketch of a likeness of somebody?" And then I ask, "How do you think you rank compared to others? Are you in the top fifth? second fifth, middle fifth, lower, or bottom fifth. Now, if human beings truly have a consistent propensity for overplacement, you would think, not just in driving, but in drawing, they'd all say, oh yeah, I'm better than most people, but the exact opposite happens. Most of us say, oh man, I'm, I'm not very good at drawing, and, and you have this, you, you know there's good drawers out there, so you figure, well, I must be worse than average. But when we all think we're worse than average, it's unlikely. <laughs> so <laughs> it's unlikely, and so what you find is that yes, there is a tendency for overprecision, but overestimation and overplacement are can be manipulated by the questions you ask and uh, how you solicit the information. And I can show you that uh, I mean I, I would say the problem is not with the respondent; the problem is with the people who've been administering the surveys because they have not asked balanced designs. Well, so it's just a much more complicated area, uh, and that's why I think uh, the the kind of simplistic conclusion that oh people are prone to overconfidence it, it's there's really much more there than meets the eye. And I really liked your analysis of the driving example.
0: We don't have a lot of information about lots of other drivers, other than we know that we see accidents and we know we're not in them every day, and we're. It might be perfectly rational and reasonable – I like to use the word – I don't like the word rational so much, but reasonable to argue that – to think at least without more information that you're better than average when, in fact, of course, you are not. Just two quick reactions to your examples. I, I love it when um, baseball announcers talking about a right fielder will say that he's got a better than average arm. Uh, <laughs> that They say it about every right fielder pretty much. Right field tends to be the place where most yeah. teams put their best throwers in the outfield – and um, they have better than average arm to the American people, uh, or they have better arm than I do. But uh, about half of the uh, outfielders are better than average uh, as right fielders, and they they never um, they almost never notice that. Uh, and part of the reason, by the way, reasonably, is that they all throw pretty close to each other. There are very few that have an extraordinary arm. So one way to capture that is to say better than average. But of course,
1: it's not literally true. Um, I had enough. Well, depends on the reference set. You know, I exactly. mean, you're absolutely right. They have a better than average arm compared to most outfielders. That's why they're in right field, but it doesn't follow they have a better than average uh, arm for a right fielder Correct. So the, the reference point matters a lot, yeah.
0: And then lastly, uh, I got to see in art most of the time growing up. <laughs> this was in the days when self esteem wasn't, uh, people didn't worry so much about it, but I grew up thinking I was a horrible artist, which in some dimension I, I might be. I don't know. But I assumed I could never learn to draw. And about ten years, fifteen years ago, my wife and I decided we were going to learn how to draw, or at least give it a shot. And we—it turns out you can actually learn to draw. A almost anybody, even me, almost anyone can learn to draw a, a, a portrait of someone that looks something like them. I didn't think it was possible. I underestimated. I had underconfidence.
1: Well, yeah, you underestimated, and uh, but but when you said the information we have about ourselves and others, so rather than saying people are overconfident, underconfident, the word that I like better, and again, I, I borrowed this from Don Moore at Berkeley, and I think is a very, very bright guy, he says people are myopic. What you do is you, you, you see very clearly what's close to you, which is yourself, you know how good you are as a driver, as a drawer, as lots of things, and you have less information about everybody else. When you're very good at something, and most of us are very good at driving, and we know there are some bad drivers out there, and it is not unreasonable. In fact, it is reasonable to imagine that, well, on average, I'm probably somewhat better than most. And we had to do the opposite on drawing. I know I'm not very good, and man, I know there's some really good artists out there. So I guess, given my tendency to make myopic inferences from limited information, I'm probably worse than average. It doesn't mean we're all overconfident, not at all. So let's shift gears. Um, and, oh, before we do that, I want to, why don't you
0: summarize? So, so, what are the lessons? You know, if I'm about to make a big decision, I'm about to use a lot of examples in the book of bidding on a contract or mm-hmm. uh, an auction setting, or you could argue I could. You could argue I'm choosing uh, a career path. Uh, should I worry about being overconfident?
1: Well, you should worry about. Doing what it takes to make the best decision. Now, for some of us, uh, having a somewhat elevated level of confidence encourages us to do things we might not otherwise undertake. We will bring more energy. We will bring more commitment. If we meet with initial difficulties, we will persevere. We will also persuade others to come with us. There's many examples of how overconfident, a high level of confidence will lead to better performance. For some of us, others of us are the kind of people who say, you know, gosh, it's when I'm afraid of failure and I think maybe I can't, that that summons the best in me. So it's not having a certain thing in your mind that leads to results, it's how what's in your mind either does or does not translate into your actions. Uh, And so what you need to understand about yourself is, am I the kind of person who achieves better when I'm somewhat more optimistic about myself and my prospects or not. Um, so that that would be the, sh- the first thing I would say. The other thing I would say, and, and we talked a little bit earlier about the competitive domain, and that's why I talk about winning decisions because in business or sports or the military or politics, you don't want to do well. You want to do oftentimes better than others. One thing you find in a competitive setting is that the one who wins probably had a level of confidence that surpassed others. And in that sense, I would say that somewhat elevated level of confidence is not only useful, it's probably essential. And so you need to be concerned about not, a lot of the book talks about how you want to make sure you don't make the type two error of failing to act when the spoils go to those who are willing to act. And the
0: other thing missing, I think from the literature and I especially when you think about the implications for decision-making, is the possibility of learning. So if I Mm -hmm. had tried to draw for for five years and my fifth year of effort looked very similar to my first year, I think I'd kind of stay underconfident about my drawing ability. And I think if you persistently misestimate the length of the world's rivers, you could eventually come to a conclusion that you weren't very good at geography, or at least your stock of knowledge of geography was limited. So I think think a lot of that literature um, just ignores that possibility. Um, let's, mm-hmm. sh- let's shift gears. Let's talk about ex- experience and expertise and what we know about mm-hmm. practice, and I particularly enjoyed the thoughts um, you had about case studies as a, a way of gaining expertise in the MBA programs. Uh, talk
1: about that. Well you, well, you just mentioned a moment ago You know, drawing. Drawing is an example, and I could give you many others. I, I talk in the book about you know shooting baskets or you could bake a cake or, for that matter, a surgeon. Uh, Atul Gawande talks a lot about how a surgeon needs a coach because surgery, as important as it is, it's a discrete event that takes a certain amount of time but at the end of which you usually have a fairly clear feedback of how well you did. You can then take that feedback on board and try again. I give examples about hitting golf balls, shooting baskets, Drawing would be another example, and so forth. So this all comes into what we call deliberate practice, and there's been a lot of research that says the way to develop expertise is through deliberate practice. Great, but every one of those examples is an example of a sequential activity, typically not that long in duration, for which you get concrete feedback and try again. That doesn't apply very well in, let's say, the business world, to decisions where you don't get rapid feedback. If I launch a new product, if I enter a new market, if I acquire another company, these are things that are events that will take a long time to get feedback. By the time I get the feedback, so many other uh, things have intervened that it's very hard to know exactly what led to what. And so the idea that you can do something, learn, and try again, Uh, is, I think, a bit illusory. So I'm not against the case method in in terms of uh, discussion-based learning in classes, but let's not fool ourselves that a case study is like deliberate practice of shooting a basket. Strategic decisions, military decisions, political decisions, big business decisions, do not lend themselves to deliberate practice and therefore we need to think differently. We may may need to say rather than trying, seeing what worked and try again, maybe I need to spend more time trying to get this decision right because I don't have the luxury of trying once, learning and trying again. And and, and so the, the main thing I'm trying to convey here is I'm not against deliberate practice. I'm, I'm trying to get people to understand that it's extraordinarily powerful for some kinds of things, but really rather irrelevant and wide of the mark and perhaps even dangerous for other kinds of things. Well, I, I
0: do think we have a serious problem with overconfidence. You'll tell me which kind, which whether it's overprecision, overestimation, overplacement, when after a complex decision takes place and then the complex events – Unfold, uh, And I, it's very easy to then fool myself into thinking that I made the right decision because there are so many uh, data points about it. I can choose so many variables I can leave out. Uh, so there I think people do have uh, what I would call overconfidence in how they assess their, for example, their decision-making ability. I think most people mm-hmm. in leadership roles think they are, quote, good decision-makers. It could be true, of course. They could be well above the average of the population. But I do think um, – Politicians in particular at least don't like to admit they made mistakes, and I I even think they don't admit those mistakes much to themselves. Uh, I think they're probably pretty good at cherry-picking and and fooling themselves. I
1: I think that's right, and I think uh, what also plays into that is what we expect of a leader. One of the things that we want to see leaders be is uh, persistent and steadfast and persevere. Uh, And if... um, I have an example in the book. They actually did an interesting experiment. If 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 a leader uh, persists, 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 and always fails, uh, they don't get credit for for succeeding, but they get credit for persistence. But if you change, 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 and win, they usually say, "Well, you know, you were lucky, and um, <laughs> you uh, you you weren't really um, very you, yeah. consistent anyway. So uh, I guess your your success was not because you were adaptable and agile. It's because uh, you just got lucky." Um, and I think another thing that happens is that as people as people's careers go forward, uh, some people don't do well. They're selected out, and those who continue to do well, they keep getting reinforcement that says you're good, you're good, you're very good, and, and they tend to believe it because that's, of course, their experience.
0: Yeah, that's um, a great it, point. So selection bias it, there, even if they are good. Some of them might actually be good decision makers, but some of them are merely lucky, and they turn out to look
1: smart. That, that's exactly right. Yeah.
0: So I once, on the case study issue, I, I just when I was reading your book, it just the story resonated with me, uh, for a bunch of reasons. I think you'll like it. The, I had a conversation with a CEO once. Yeah, it was we were alone. It was he and I were in my office, and uh, he said something remarkably honest. Uh, he was the former CEO. Actually, his company had gone bankrupt, and he had lost his job. It was a big company, by the way. It was not a small company. So this was a – I don't know. I didn't bring it up. I was embarrassed to talk. I wouldn't have brought it up because I thought it was embarrassing, but he brought it up. And then he confessed to me. He said – and he was a Harvard MBA, uh, which is relevant. He said, you know, when I had to make that key decision, he said, I used the wrong case study. <laughs> and I thought this is the greatest. <laughs> I knew you'd like it. I mean, it's unbelievable, right? Uh, so, so he he went he he shuffled through the files, right? He went through the mental rolodex of cases, and he picked yes. the one he thought was analogous to the situation he was in. and It was he picked the wrong one. Uh, of course, you know, I'm not sure that that's literally. I mean, if it's really a meaningful statement, but but it yeah. is the danger of the case study program, the case study examples that it's not shooting a free throw. Free throw is the same every time. Fifteen right. feet yep. away, the ball's you know round. It's the same size.
1: The hoop yep. is the yep. the basket's the same and, size, and that's why deliberate practice can be extraordinarily powerful for some things, and really doesn't make sense for others. Um, that's not to say the case method can't be useful. By the way, you know when you teach the case method, the point the point should not be in this circumstance, use this case, it should be something else. But anyway, you Correct. we don't need to go down that, uh, that path.
0: Yeah. Let, let's talk about uh, a very interesting set of, of results that you talk about in the book, which is related to the winner's curse. So describe mm-hmm. uh, what the winner's curse is, and uh, what are the lessons we should learn from it compared to what people think the
1: lessons are? Sure. Okay. Well, the winner's curse, the winner's curse is a very interesting thing because um, it's not a cognitive bias. It's not, some, it's not where any individual has made an error in estimation or in uh, evaluation of something. It's actually the outcome of a process. If you've got a number of people placing a bid for something, for example, you know, the, the classic is you put a bunch of nickels in a jar and you ask people to come up and estimate how many, are, how many nickels are in the jar and what they'd be willing to pay for the jar, What they found, and they've done this a number of times, not just with nickels and jars but other things, is that even if everybody tries to be a bit conservative, and even if on average we all bid a bit low, the nature of a distribution is such that at least a few people will probably err on the high side and the person who's the highest and the wildest on the high side is the happy, I use the term ironically, winner of the jar, they've overpaid. So the winner's curse says, the person who wins the auction probably overpaid. Or if you think about it on a low bid for a contract, you know you get five different bids from contractors and the low bid wins, the one who's low enough to win the bid, congratulations, you've won the bid, but you probably bid so low you won't make money. So it's the winner's curse in the other direction. Um, and there's been a lot of studies of this uh, it, the, the, the way this was formalized goes back to the early seventies had to do with bidding for oil tracts in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, lots of companies were bidding and they, they looked and they thought we're losing money. And then they looked across companies and everybody was losing money because of the nature of the winner's curse. So there's a few standard lessons. Um, uh, you know, one of which is don't <laughs> bid. <laughs> well, if you can, buy that item somewhere else. You know, for example, there's stuff you can buy on I won't mention the name, but you know, well-known uh, internet auction sites where, you know, why why don't go there thinking you can get a deal. You probably won't get a deal. Buy it through another channel if you can. But one of the things that I try to bring out in the book is that most of these examples, you know, how many nickels are in a jar, or so forth, they're what we call a public value auction, which means it's, uh, they call it a, a, sorry, a common value auction, which means the value of the nickels in the jar is common to all of us bidding. It's the same number of nickels, and each nickel buys you five cents and buys me five cents, so it's worth the same. However, be careful if you take the lessons of the winner's curse and apply it not to common value auctions, but private value auctions. A private value auction is when the thing that is being bid for may actually have a different value to you or for me. So for example, the oil track, well, in some ways it's common because it's the same amount of oil in the ground if you buy it or I buy it. But in fact, you may have an ability to more efficiently extract and process the oil than I would. So you might want to pay more for that because it has greater value for you. And then If you think again about the oil field, you don't just capture that value immediately, it's probably an oil field that'll have a 10, 20 year useful life. Now you have to ask the question, what are my capabilities of extracting and and bringing out the oil, not just next year, but in five years and in 10 years, and how much better do I think I will get at this over time? Now we get back into this issue about control because this is no longer a common value auction. This is one where you might say, how much better do I think I can get? Now, let's make this really simple. You and I are both bidding for a certain you know, oil track in, in, in the Gulf of Mexico, and you have your capabilities and I have mine. Well, neither of us wants to bid too much for it. On the other hand, if I'm not willing to bid somewhere beyond my present capabilities, I'll never win the track. So you almost have to bid beyond today's capabilities. Now this brings us back to overconfidence. If you do that, someone may say, "Uh ah, Russ, you're overestimating. You're bidding based on a level of capabilities you do not yet have. And you'll say, yeah, that may be true, but I know what my historic rate of improvement has been. I believe this will continue, and if I am not willing to bid somewhere beyond my capabilities today, I'm gonna lose the bid to fill, and then I won't win anything. So, again, there are certain auctions you should not take part in. There's auctions where you should understand it's a common value and you should be very conservative. But there are other settings where in a competitive setting where you can influence outcomes and improve your performance, you must be willing to go beyond what you've done up until now. Yeah, I think one of the problems with the literature is that
0: You want to use nickels because then you can literally show that the person overpaid because you can count. As you say, it's a common value. Everybody knows what the nickels are actually worth once you actually open the jar and count them. And so you can, quote, prove that people overbid. Now, the implications of that are, are, to me, extremely uninteresting because if you consistently overbid, you're not going to have much money after a while. The market's going to correct that problem, and you're not going to be in the bidding pool. Uh, So Mm -hmm. it – the The more interesting questions are the ones that you talk about, which are where you have- inside information and then the question is meaning your own capabilities uh the fact that it's going to take place over time, and then of course it's very difficult to evaluate at the time of the bid you know, you know the the press will write about it you know and the the sports example is phenomenal you know people hire a free agent, oh, they overpaid or they say oh they they got a bargain. They have no idea. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a form of entertainment, uh, the sport to make sports fans uh, give them something to pass the time. But I enjoy reading that, by the way. It's I understand the, the the appeal of it, but it's not a serious exercise in trying to establish whether it was a wise decision or not.
1: Well, you're absolutely right about the nickels. Uh, we can count them. And by the way, the whole experiment takes about ten minutes. And then I can bring another class and do it again and tweak a few things and very quickly I get lots of data and I can publish a paper that meets all the demands of replicable, statistically significant empirical work. That's great. And to identify the fundamental phenomenon, I have no problem. The problem is when you take a lesson from a contrived experimental setting and you then generalize that to a setting that is very, very different. Be careful. And so one of my, you know, one of my concerns is again, I don't mean to criticize the people who do the basic research. I criticize the people who say, and therefore, here's what it means in a very different setting without recognizing the difference. So, what I'm, uh, you know, I, I sometimes say what I should have called my book is is a yes, but because what I'm saying is, yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there, but in you know, be careful about deliberate practice, be careful about how we think about the winner's curse, be careful about, you know, decision models and so forth, because what we have now come to accept makes a lot of sense for these circumstances, but really should not be applied into those circumstances. And you, dear reader, I would like to help you begin to understand the difference.
0: Well, I think left brain right stuff is actually a better title than yes, but so I think you made the right (laughs) call there. Uh, I've often thought about writing a book called all those books that you've read about decision-making are wrong, that's not a title uh, that's that's going to sell. The, no one likes to be told that they're cherished. This happens to me all the time with casual friends. They'll, I'm not going to quote authors, but they'll quote some well well-known author's Clever result about oh isn't this the greatest? And I always want to say yeah well here's what's wrong with the experiment here's why in your case your example doesn't apply, et cetera. Et cetera. But no one wants to hear that they just want to be they just want to enjoy the the novelty of it and it, it's good cocktail party conversation. And I wonder if they really take it seriously anyway for their own decision making. So it could be it could be less dangerous than, than it appears. But who, who knows? Um, let's talk about new ventures. I really uh, liked your your observation that that people make about new ventures that quote most of them fail uh, right you challenge the empirical claim to start with and then you challenge uh, the conclusion that people sometimes draw from that so what 's wrong with right. that that claim when people say some x number percent of businesses are or disappear after five years
1: right so and and this has been pretty well documented and doesn 't matter if you look at the You know, the 80s, the 90s, or just recently, you know, gee, all these businesses that are founded, you know, half of them are gone after five years and 80% are gone after seven years. And therefore, therefore, most new businesses fail. And therefore, the assumption is starting them up was a a mistake. You're a sucker. (laughs) And and because it was a mistake, you know, you thought you could succeed. You didn't realize this and and, uh, that that it was against the odds. Yeah. And it was, you were overconfident, you neglected base rates, and therefore, you know, there's some kind of cognitive error behind it. So, um, and again, here I'm going to quote my my colleague, Stuart Reed, uh, who is now at Willamette College, Willamette University in Oregon. Um, Stuart uh, works in in an area about new business creation, and he talks a lot about affordable loss and um, how it's true that a lot of these businesses don't persist, they don't survive, but many of them find ways to limit their costs and essentially only lose as much as they were willing to, and then they can learn from that and start again. Uh, so, and, and part of it, it's not just a rationalization. You ask people, you know, would you do this again? Yes, I would, because I was able to um, meet my costs, uh, not lose much, learn, and I can go on from there. And it was, it uh, and, was exciting.
0: I was my own boss. I was creating something from scratch. It was mine. There are a lot of non-monetary aspects
1: to it that you point out. To, yes, although I'm a little bit uh, a little bit cautious there because you know it, it ain't so exciting and fun if you're losing a lot of money. The key yeah, thing here is that most of them find ways not to lose much yeah, I'm money. I'm talking so, about so, limping,
0: limping along uh, or yeah.
1: not going broke. And then finally survival deciding, pulling itself the yeah, I think that 's right. survival itself is not the only measure of success. You have to look at at the wins and losses and here again, come back to the issue of control starting a business it 's not like you know, rolling a dice, and let 's see what happens because when you roll a set of dice you can 't actually you shouldn 't be able to shape them or change them or influence them as they roll. But when you start a business, it's not a one-time choice and let's see what happens. You can actively do things along the way to lower your costs, improve your prospects, and so forth. So that's one thing. Um, but um, and, and so people go from there and say, you know, because of that, that means that people, uh, you know, showed what they call reference group neglect, in other words, I ignored how many people that have started similar businesses have lost uh, out, and therefore, I must think I was better than them. My prospects would have been better. This is an example of overconfidence. And there's some experiments that have have distilled this, but again, if you look at the nature of the experiment, you are not able to actually manage the venture, you're not able to improve your chances, you're not able to limit what you, you put in, and so they're rather contrived experiments. They do find statistically significant findings, but I think only having greatly restricted the degrees of freedom that the managers have. I mean, you know, one of the points I make in my book is that, you know, we have a lot of problems in our society about health care and violence and education. Nobody ever says a great problem in American society is we start too many new businesses. Quite the contrary. We, would, we typically say, uh, the entrepreneurial spirit and, and climate for starting new businesses is a strong point of American society that most other countries want to learn from. So even, at, even at, at, at the level of face validity, there's something wrong when people say, you know, gee, so many new businesses fail, therefore it was a mistake to start them, therefore people are suffering from biases. It, it's just not true. That doesn't mean, by the way, there aren't some people out there who are totally deluded when they start new businesses. I'm sure there are. But but in the main, I think that the picture is rather different from how it's often portrayed. Yeah, I have to quote Adam Smith here. He's
0: talking about soldiers uh, are going to sea, but he could be talking about uh, entrepreneurs. He says, the contempt of risk and the presumptuous hope of success are in no period of life more active than at the age of which young, at which young people choose their professions. How little the fear of misfortune is then capable of balancing the hope of good luck appears still more evidently in the readiness of the common people to enlist as soldiers or to go to sea than in the eagerness of those of better fashion to enter into what are called the liberal professions. So, close quote. So there's no doubt that young people, for example, are more eager to start businesses for a lot of reasons, by the way, not just a cognitive failure as Smith is hinting at, but... The mm-hmm. fact that the costs are lower uh, if you fail, it's not as you, typically you don't have a family who are sharing the burden of your failure. It's only falling on you. You don't have to feel bad about that, mm-hmm. and, and so on. Um, and the other point you make, which I thought was was really important, is is adapting, uh, with, which is missing mm-hmm. from the the experiments. Talk about the importance of ad, adaptation.
1: Right. Well, that's the other thing you see when you when you look at uh, new ventures that start up. I mean, even some very successful startups. Uh, their success was not at exactly the product or service or market that they had in mind at the beginning. Uh, so again, what you find when entrepreneurs start things up, they have an idea, they do take some chances, they may have a somewhat elevated level of confidence, but very quickly they take on information from consumers, from competitors, and they will pivot, that's a term you hear a lot in Silicon Valley, they will adapt, they will try to keep their costs low, um, again, my colleague Stuart Reed uses the term uh, effectuation. Uh, it's the opposite of causation. A causal approach is when you have the, the, um, the end in mind, and you know what to do to get to the end. An effectual approach says, let's start with our means, let's start with our resources, and let's see how best to combine them for an interesting end. And when you look at many companies that's, that are successful, they have taken this adaptive effectual approach. One of the problems we have is we don 't teach that. we teach you know we 'll come up with a business plan. A business plan typically says, "This is this end I have, and here 's the steps that are going to lead to that end. Very few companies, even with so called good business plans, ever live out exactly the plan that they had in mind, and usually an L- an ingredient of success is that they abandon that plan rather quickly. What they do they play to their strength, they know what they 're good at, they take on feedback from the market, and they adapt and are agile, while also generally trying to not commit more than than they can afford to lose. You quote George Bernard Shaw
0: uh, from Man and Superman, his play, where Shaw writes, "'The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man.'" Uh, you, you, that sounds great. By the way, it's a dramatic, it's eloquent, uh, it's a beautiful quote. It's somewhat inspiring, uh, but it's not really right, is it?
1: Well, uh, it's not entirely right. You could say that progress is due to unreasonable men and women. You can also say that the greatest catastrophes are due to unreasonable men <laughs> and women who inflict, uh, you know, their grandiose ideas and harebrained schemes and you know other kinds of uh, destructions on on fellow people. Um, and it's also true that, uh, yes, you, you try to influence things and, and bend the world to your will, but a lot of times success is also about uh, being nimble and adapting, uh, and, and we see lots of examples of that in, uh, in startups.
0: Uh, what are what is the best overall strategy for success? Uh, given th- there are challenges, we don't want to. You're not saying that it's easy to to do a startup. All you have to do is pay attention and work hard at it. Uh, but you have some general advice for uh, success
1: in in startups. Um, well, I, I think one of the things is you you do need to have ideas that others don't have. You need to think of where is a a comparative advantage, Uh, and it is important to be willing to take risks, but then if you're gonna fail, to fail fast, Um, to try to engender in people around you a belief that you can do what has not been done, you need to inspire, but you also then have to have this realistic idea of taking on from the market. So I come back to the title of the book, left brain, right stuff. Left brain is, you you do need to have this absolutely detached, sober, and um, thoughtful view of what's out there. You've got to be realistic. But right stuff is you also have to be willing to push boundaries. So I think the two of them go together.
0: Well, one of the things you you talk about in the book is uh, the importance of risk management. And in, in a way, there's a theme in the book, which is, well, there are a lot of themes, but one of them is this idea that you know taking a risk that's that's really dangerous that's imprudent is a bad idea but it's also a bad idea to miss an opportunity because you're not bold enough and i think you talk very thoughtfully and especially with respect to startups about the importance of of risk management we have a romantic ideal that entrepreneurs especially in silicon valley are these wild-eyed dreamers who overcome all their skepticism and the skepticism of people around them people who say it can't be done and they do it anyway they take a big mm-hmm. leap. Uh, but that's really not what is – that's not the road to success. That's not why they're successful. It's more about it. – it's not so much taking risk as dealing with risk.
1: Yeah, that's right, and and there is a section there. I, I had some very interesting conversations with uh, folks out in Silicon Valley, and, and one guy there said a lot of it is risk management. There's a few different kinds of risk. There's technical risk. There's market risk. There's financial risk, and he thought about them very differently. He says, technical risk, if, if we are not able to overcome the technical risk, then you know, we shouldn't be in, in this line of business. That's, that's within our power. It's what our added value should be. Market risk is that's everything outside that I can't control. You know, if if you ever say, my business depends on consumers being willing to buy something they've never bought before, or prefer something they haven't preferred in the past, you're dreaming. So there's a big difference between the internal technical risk that you should be able to influence and the external market risk. The third he talks about is financial risk, and there it has to do with how quickly you burn through the resources that you have. And one of the things he talks about is uh, you, you, you want to be very cautious about spending early because it shouldn't take all that much money to do certain kinds of technical startups. And there are companies that fail because they burn through much too much money too rapidly. However, his point was there's also been a transition point. There's a point where your product becomes successful. And if you are not willing, to commit the funds to ramp up the marketing and the market presence, you will miss two. So there's a sort of crossover point, and this fellow was telling me a lot of companies get that wrong. So risk management is uh, is is a very crucial thing there.
0: So let's talk. Let's close and talk about this literature generally that you're uh, yes, but talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm more skeptical than you are probably about the the replicability and, and generality of even the experimental results, uh, you're willing to accept those mostly in the book. You're then being critical of what the implications are. I, I wanted to make an observation and get your reaction. It, it seems to me that um, the behavioral economics literature or this decision-making literature that's experimentally based that you're that you're mainly talking about – Uh, It's not designed to help us make good decisions. It's designed by its authors to get publishable articles. (laughs) Uh, Their incentives are not uh, necessarily to produce experiments that lead to important lessons for making decisions. They're designed to produce clever and novel and startling results to get them into the latest journals. So to some extent, I think we've maybe asked too much of that literature. What do you think?
1: Well, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna come at this in a slightly different way. I'm I'm not gonna criticize them so much because of you know the publishable article thing. I would say though, they're trying to do work that is interesting. If your main concern is about human cognition, cognitive psychology, you want to know how how the mind is working and the applications in real world settings are not really your concern. Now, I do believe a lot of their findings are applicable in certain kinds of decisions, a lot of consumer marketing decisions, uh, a lot of financial investing decisions. I think there are pretty good uh, applications there. But we begin to stray when we talk, number one, about not simply making choices from options presented to me, but where I can Alter the options where I can improve the outcomes where positive thinking can matter number one and number two where I'm trying not just to do well but I'm trying to do better than a rival who's also trying to do better than me so I'm fairly charitable with the the basic research uh, I'm concerned about the applications and and I would say, um, you know, I'm I'm by no means a Marxist, but I do like the idea of sort of thesis, antithesis, synthesis, sort of dialectics. I think that the thesis that has been so strong in at least post-war economics has been to assume that humans are fundamentally rational, and maybe not just fundamentally, that, that we should assume this in a lot of our theories and models. Fine. The antithesis of that in the last number of years has been to point out that actually people make some fairly predictable errors. Doesn't mean people are irrational, but it doesn't mean under certain circumstances they make judgments and choices that uh, diverge from the tenets of economic rational theory. Fine, but now what I'm trying to do, and I think some others are trying to move from the antithesis to a synthesis. Where we say, okay, it's old news to say that I can show you that under certain settings, people make decisions that are that run counter to rationality. Fine, we know that. But now let's try to say, how do we move to better understand the way people really behave in real world settings? And the main point I'm saying is, there ain't one kind of decision. There are very different kinds of decisions we make. Some where you can shape outcomes, some where you cannot. Some that involve competition, some that don't. Some that are repeated, like deliberate practice. And what I want people to begin to understand is, to make the best decision, I really need to understand more about what kind of decision I'm making and to be able to then learn how to uh, uh, respond in an appropriately versatile way to that.
0: You give some examples in the book of where you interviewed decision makers after they made billion dollar decisions, big decisions, not not what peanut butter to buy on a Tuesday afternoon at the grocery. And um, you, I don't know if this was a, a straw man or whether you were just opening the conversation, but you, you asked them, were you worried about overconfidence? And, of course, they said, well, sure we were. Of course we were. And I kind of go back and forth on these. Uh, you know, for me, uh, so my, my pet issue is confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. I find it remarkable how aware I am of it and yet how sti- still how hard it is for me to um, sometimes uh, remember to take it into account. So close and talk about just being aware of these things is useful, but it's still hard to do, to take account of them.
1: Right, it, it, it is, but in that particular setting, you, you, can, you can know that there are dangers of overconfidence, but if what it leads you to do is not take action, you're never going to win. And so there are many settings. could be a competitive bid, as in that example. It could be something else in a competitive um, setting where your fear of committing what we call a type one error, that is to take action and fail, is significant, but at least if you take action, you can win, and maybe you can actually do things to improve your chances of winning. You've gotta be very fearful of a type two error, which is a false negative, which is a failure to act. It's an error of omission as as opposed to an error of commission, so if what we have learned from a lot of this decision literature is up, the way to avoid errors is not to do stuff, (laughs) <laughs> well, now you've got another set of problems because in the real world, you're going to do stuff. And if what you've taken is I'm going to avoid biases by not doing stuff, I think that's not terribly helpful. And, and again, that's, that's a, a bit strong. Nobody is quite saying that. But if you look at a lot of this conventional literature, you say, oh, I could make this kind of error. I could, you know, I could, gee, how do I avoid the confirmation bias and how do I avoid overconfidence? I'll tell you how to avoid those things. Don't do anything. But then you've got another set of problems. And so um, it is good to be aware of these things before the fact. What you should try to do, I think, is understand them, try to recognize them when you see them, try to improve your probability of success, always knowing that you'll never get everything right, and resisting then making a knee-jerk attribution after, of oh, I guess I was overconfident. No, actually... Maybe that was an appropriate level. Things just didn't work out. So this is this third level I'm talking about, thesis, antithesis, and now I hope a synthesis where we can say, right, we, we we know that people are not fully rational or fully reasonable all the time. But let's try to advance the sophistication with which we think about real-world decision-making and make decisions that will be better rather than less good. My guest today has been Phil
0: Rosenzweig. His book is Left Brain Right Stuff, How Leaders Make Winning Decisions – Phil, thanks for being part of Econ Talk.
1: My pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.